Again, I appreciate your efforts to uh, be here this morning, and I do hope that the Lord will richly bless you for it. And uh, indeed, we need to be praying for our nation and world uh, in these times of the virus. And I think at the top of the list of requests is that God will turn this lemon into lemonade and that it will be the occasion of turning in America back to the church and back to Jesus Christ. We know that football is not going to make that happen, is it? Uh, and we know that economic prosperity is not going to make that happen. We could add other things to our list. Maybe a virus will. And uh, a year ago, whenever I called my preacher friends, they were all very down and dismal. I didn't hear much good news out of anybody. Of course, those were dark times for all of us, but it seems like in the uh, last six months, as I get to calling around or I'm being called, I hear more and more good news about baptisms, and larger congregations, and things like this. In fact, uh, I preached a meeting, my first meeting after all the lockdown, and uh, the crowds looked like 30 years ago. So we need to pray, pray, pray that the uh, Lord will bless our churches, give us a state of revival, and perhaps the virus will be the occasion for that. This morning I want to speak to you from the third chapter of the book of Galatians. And uh, this is a chapter that has uh, had a very momentous impact on the history of the world. I think we could say that of any of the 27 books in the New Testament, that uh, the book has had a more favorable influence on the world than any book outside the Bible. But the book of Galatians has had a very visible impact. Back during the Dark Ages, most of what called itself Christianity had in fact gravitated very far uh, from the teachings of the Word of God. Part of the reason for this was that people didn't have Bibles. Uh, the printing press had not been made, so if you uh, had a Bible, it was a handwritten copy, which uh, meant it was enormously expensive. Uh, and not having a Bible in hand, many people were easily duped by the errors that were common in that world. Then along comes Gutenberg and the printing press. Now we can mass produce Bibles. And uh, as people begin to read the Bible, especially books like Galatians, they could see that these books were written to correct errors. The book of Galatians was written to admonish churches in a region called Galatia for their errors, and lo and behold, our errors are their errors. We're doing the same thing, making the same mistakes that are being admonished uh, in this book. And so uh, this led to what's called the Reformation and uh, that to the Renaissance and that to the modern world. Now uh, we're living in times where we seem to be slipping back into the dark ages. We're, we're going backwards now. So uh, it is high time that we use the old medicine, the Word of God, 
uh, read the Word of God and hope that it will turn us from this trend that we're on. Now, in chapter 3, Paul begins with a statement I think about a lot. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Uh, Jesus had been preached there with such power, it was as though they had seen the crucifixion and its effects with their own eyes. But now uh, they are departing. They are not outright rejecting Jesus. That's not the problem. And uh, if they were rejecting Christ, no longer believing in him, then I wouldn't be believing in their salvation. Uh, God's children are capable of uh, many errors, egregious errors. We're going to find that reading the book of Galatians. But to just outright reject Jesus, those are depths that I would not expect a born-again child of God to go. They're not doing this. What they are doing is they're blending works with grace. And they're trying to take things from the Old Testament law and put them in the New Testament church. And of course, people all over the world are doing these things. Most of Christians are attempting to do this. And the book of Galatians will show us that this is no minor thing. This is uh, a severe error, severe enough that Paul would say, I marvel that ye would do a thing like this. And uh, I must agree that carnal man is a marvelous thing. Uh, it's a marvel to me that there would be any religion on this planet besides the Christian religion. The Christian religion has the highest hopes, highest aspirations, greatest promises of any religion in the world. It says man was created in God's image. He'll be restored to God's image. That he will be a joint heir with the very Son of God. All things are his. What religion in the world promises more than the Christian religion? And yet, the Christian religion is the most highly corroborated religion in the world. There's more reasons to believe it uh, in science, in reason, in inspiration than any religion of the world. Why would there be any religion in this world besides the Christian religion? And why would there be an empty seat in any church house in this world is beyond me. Uh, there shouldn't be a single empty seat. The next thing that uh, will cause me to marvel is how that... Uh, People have very little interest in the doctrines of grace. Uh, here we take what Old Baptists teach. It is doubtlessly the simplest, most unified system in all of Christianity. Old Baptists teach you're saved by grace, period. We don't have to amend that, modify it anyway. Human obedience is very important. It serves to the confirmation of eternal life. It's not a cause of it. Human obedience also secures for us temporal joys, assurance, and peace. Now, that's a very simple system, isn't it? 
And uh, we absolutely never depart from it. Normally, people are drawn to uh, systems that are beautifully unified around a few principles. You get out in the Christian world, everywhere you go, it's more complicated than it is here. Uh, even in Reformed theology, with which we have many agreements, things get too complicated of many points, you say. So I marvel that so few people take an interest in it. Uh, here we have mega churches that are basically teaching nothing, where there are tens of thousands of people, and yet the old Baptists have to fight and scratch for every member they've got. Oh, uh, I'm 63 now. Lived a while, see a few things. Here's something that I've never seen. Uh, I've never seen a person say, I used to believe that I was saved for grace. But praise God, my heart is filled with joy. Uh, I have come to the belief that I am saved by my works. Glory, hallelujah. Have you ever seen that? But I've seen it many times work the opposite way. That I used to be under the dreadsome burden of the thought of salvation by works. And then I came to an understanding of Jesus Christ. And now my heart is filled with joy. Uh, and uh, I intend to spend the rest of my life uh, supporting, praising the cause of Jesus Christ. And of course, thousands of people have. Uh, so, I must say with the Apostle Paul, I marvel that so many people have been removed uh, or will not unite with the simple Bible-based teachings concerning Christ. Take this. Here's another thing I've never seen in my whole life. A person would say that years ago I was going through a trial and I thought that of the hand of God had a purpose in that trial. But now I'm older and I'm wiser. And I can look back on it all and see, praise God, it was just a big accident. That's all it was. God didn't have anything to do with it. It was just a big accident. Glory, hallelujah. You never heard that, have you? But here's a story you've heard many times. Years ago, I was enduring a trial. And I couldn't see God anywhere in it. Couldn't see any purpose in it. I was distraught. But now I'm older and wiser and I can look back and see that God had a purpose in the whole thing. You see, people don't rejoice in chance. Chance is the thing that makes them unhappy. Uh, they rejoice in certainty, they rejoice in providence, predestination. That's what I'm preaching. And I marvel that anybody would be uh, offended by it or marvel that they would want to be drawn to the dice-throwing systems of this world where, in fact, thousands of people are seated. Uh, church, church houses teaching these dice-throwing systems Thousands of people are seated there. Here, I marvel. Now, what does all that prove? 
That proves there's a devil. Uh, he's deceiving people, and he's working hard at it. He's working night and day. Uh, my dad's mom, she was a person that would never say anything bad about anybody. She was just sweet as she could be. And uh, dad, one day, he mouthed off about somebody, and Meemaw defended this person that dad mouthed off about. And dad said, Mom, you'd have something good to say about the devil. And she fired back and said, he ain't lazy. <laughs> he ain't lazy. Oh, he's, he's, he's working around the clock. And that's the reason Paul said, uh, I'm, I marvel that you should be so soon removed. And he said, who hath bewitched you? Who hath bewitched you that you would not obey the truth? I'm going to tell you that man is depraved, and he's got a devil that is deceiving him. This only what I learn of you, asked Paul, receive ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of grace. Are ye so foolish, having begotten the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? Have ye suffered so many things in vain? If it be yet in vain, he therefore that ministereth to you the Spirit, and worketh miracles among you, doeth he it by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. And so Paul here is making observations, asking questions like I've been doing here over the last few minutes. Uh, when were you blessed? When were miracles taking place among you? Was it after you got into this works religion that you're in love with now, or was it when you were teaching salvation by grace? Paul was not at Galatia at the time, but he already knew what had happened. Uh, their churches were becoming cold, and the Holy Spirit was no longer being felt as it had been before. Like I said earlier, you never see a person going from law to work, excuse me, from grace to works, who's happy about it. When you see people going from works to grace, you find happy people. Now, the Gentiles there at Galatia were thinking that their point of intersection with the uh, Old Testament was at Moses and the law. They were trying to bring in things from the law and put them in the church. And uh, here's one problem. I'm going to pull off Dad's trick there and take that off. Uh, most of the Christian world doesn't know what to do with the law. A lot of times when you ask them, why do you do this? Why do you have that? They'll run over to the Old Testament text. Uh, this is what happened with musical instruments. They'll run to the law. Uh, if you'll ask them, uh, why do you baptize babies? I guarantee uh, a few minutes into that conversation, they're going to be going over to Old Testament text, making a confused mess of those Old Testament texts. Same thing with sprinkling. They don't know what to do with the law. All right, now, uh, here's the way the Bible looks at it. That New Testament worship, the church, is the culmination and apex of God's plan of worship for the world. The law made nothing perfect. 
but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. That's Hebrews 7.19. This is the culmination and apex of the plan of God for worship in this world. It will never be replaced with anything else, and any modification to what God has given here can only serve to degrade, only serve to corrupt. You know, uh, in the Old Testament religion, as well as other religions of the world, there were dietary restrictions. Under the New Testament, there are not. So does that mean that you ought to be eating junk food as fast as you can eat it? No, it doesn't mean that. You eat that way, you'll die. But if the New Testament religion is really about such things as forgiveness of sin, immortality of the soul, resurrection of the dead, eternal existence with God in heaven, then please don't be talking to me about hot dogs. It's denigrating to the religion to make it about such things. Now, it may be a very important thing in your religion that uh, you abstain from hot dogs, but I want to tell you what, your religion must not uh, be about very important things if a hot dog is meaningful to you. This thing is about immortality. It's about resurrection from the dead. It's not about new moons, Sabbaths, hot dogs, things like that. Not about that at all. It's about the greatest things that the religious mind has ever entertained. Now, even if you go over to the Old Testament law, and you borrow things over there and bring them over into the church, you're corrupting it. You're corrupting the church for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the attitude the Bible takes. And look at the various things people tried to take from the law. They tried to take circumcision from the law, bring it over into the church. What did the apostles do? Rejected it. They tried to bring dietary restrictions from the law, bring them over to the church. What did the apostles do? They rejected it. They tried to bring Sabbaths, new moons, things like this, over from the law, put it into the church. What did the apostles do? They rejected it. They tried to bring uh, genealogies from the law, bring them over into the church. You know, over in the law, it really mattered. Are you a Jew? Are you a Gentile? Are you a Levite or a Benjaminite or whatever? They tried to bring that over into the church. What did the apostles do? They rejected it. In every case, they outright rejected it. And I'll tell you this about the law as well. Uh, I hear a lot of people say that there's an old moral law that would include the Ten Commandments. And there is a ceremonial law that describes their religious service. Then the explanation will be that the old ceremonial law has been done away but the old moral law is still a force. Now, uh, that's not the worst error I ever heard. Uh, I don't want to be overreactive, but uh, let me tell you, that's not exactly right. That's not the best explanation you can give. Time and time again in the New Testament scriptures, it said the law was done away, and not one time did it ever make a delineation between a moral law and a ceremonial law. Not one time. 
Now, uh, you're asking the question that Paul asked, Romans 6, what shall we say then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but under grace? He said, God forbid. So that means we're still under some kind of law. But we're under a law the Bible calls the law of Christ. All right, now, uh, that law of Christ is actually a higher standard than the old Mosaic law was. I've been preaching this for many years. You go down through those Ten Commandments, and I'll find you were over in the New Testament. Jesus taught you to aspire to something better. All right, so the old commandment said, honor thy father and thy mother. Jesus said, honor all men. And he said, you've got many fathers. You've got many mothers. Thou shalt not kill. Jesus said, you shouldn't even want to kill. Don't be angry with your brother without a cause. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Jesus said, don't even think about it. Don't even lust after uh, another woman, you see. Uh, thou shalt not steal. Jesus said, you need to yield. You say, oh, thou shalt not covet. That means I shouldn't want what you have. In New Testament Christianity, I shouldn't even want what I have. <laughs> right? It's all worldly stuff. It's all going to be burnt one of these days. Jesus is going to come and burn it all up. You know, remember the Sabbath. Keep it holy. Tell me, after what Jesus Christ has done for me and you, is one day a week really enough? Isn't that ridiculous to suppose that one day a week would be enough? Under the New Testament, we're keeping every day holy. That's what we should be. Every day we should wake up with thankful hearts and a determination to live that day to the glory of our resurrected Savior. That's the reason we don't have just one day a week now. We got every day, every day. And in all aspects of life, whether it's school or work or whatever, we should be seeking the honor of God. Now you take this uh, beautiful system, which if kept, will more than meet the demands of the law. You know, if a man were to tell me, today, I'm going to try to live this day where I'm always serving the interests of others. I'm going to treat everybody today the way I want to be treated. It would be utterly foolish for me to say to that man, now look, if you're going to do, I do that, I want to make sure you don't kill anybody today. Uh, uh, and don't be sleeping with another man's wife today and don't steal anything. I don't have to tell him that. He's already told you he's aiming for higher than that. He's aiming for higher than that. It'd be a waste of breath for me to tell him those things because he's aspiring to the law of Christ. And as beautiful as the Old Testament is, it is not going to improve upon uh, the law of Jesus Christ. So uh, these Gentiles, they're wanting to intersect with Moses bring in things that Moses taught, and bring them into the church. Now, Paul is going to tell them, you have found the wrong point of intersection with the Old Testament. Here's where you intersect with the Old Testament with Abraham. 
And so a whole lot of what we're going to read about in the next few verses is going to have to do with Abraham. Even, even as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, know ye therefore that they which are of faith the same are the children of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. In thee and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Now that was a promise of the coming of Christ through the lineage of Abraham. So then, they which be of faith are blessed with faithful Abraham. For as many as are of the works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that continueth not in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Uh, and, and here's another thing the Bible would teach over and over again. The law is one contract. You violate any part of it, you violated the whole. James said that. Man keep the whole law and offend at one point. He's, he's broken it all. You can't take bits and pieces out of the law while leaving the rest. Uh, that's, that's true with regard to any aspect of it. And I'll tell you, you can't do the same thing with Jesus Christ either. You can't take bits and parts. You've got to take all of them or none of them. You say, all right, those that are under the law are under a curse because... Cursed is the man that continueth not in all the things that are in the book of the law to do them, but that no man is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith, which he's quoting there from Habakkuk 2.4, but really the principle is all over the Old Testament. Uh, you'll read about those who trust in the Lord. They're righteous. Uh, those who trust in the Lord. They're the ones who will be blessed. And incidentally, uh, their righteousness is not payment for their trust. Rather, their trust is the certification of their righteousness. You know, he didn't say, uh, he didn't say that, uh, how well I want to put this. He didn't say that uh, those uh What he said is that the just shall live by faith. He didn't say those that live by faith shall be just. It took me a moment to find the words to convey that idea. The preacher saw acceptable words. Sometimes they don't come immediately. Uh, he said the just shall live by faith. He didn't say those that live by faith shall be just. Faith is the characteristic and confirmation of a man who has been rendered righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ alone. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. That the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Jesus Christ, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit 
through faith. Now, uh, some of us say that must be being born of the Spirit. No, he is not talking about being born of the Spirit. He's talking about the same Spirit that he was talking about earlier that he now says the Galatians have lost. You no longer have the Spirit in your churches. And you no longer have the extraordinary operations of the Spirit, such as miracles and healings, because you have departed from the doctrine of grace. Brethren, I speak after the manner of men. Though it be but a man's covenant, yet if it be confirmed, that means signed, no man disannoweth or addeth thereto. Which is just simply to say that honest men, upon signing a contract, do not thereafter change the contract. That's the reason you better read it before you sign it. Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made. He saith not unto seeds as of many, but unto seed as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And what he's telling us there is that this promise that all nations would be blessed in Abraham were really about one man. About one man. And this I say, that the law which was 430 years after cannot disannul that it should make the promise of none effect. 430 years before Moses got the law, God made a promise to Abraham, and I'll tell you this, it's plain as a nose on your face that the promise God made to Abraham was an unconditional promise. Unconditional promise. And thee and in thy seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed. Then we have the confirmation. This was in Genesis chapter 14 where Abraham divided the animals, the animal pieces, and the expectation is that they would operate in accordance with custom and that both Abraham and God would pass through those pieces. That didn't happen. Only God passed through those pieces. He passed through as a smoking furnace. Then he passed through as a burning lamp. And you got some prophecy in that. Abraham, your people are going to be carried down into Egypt. That is called in the Bible a smoking furnace. Your people are going to suffer down there in Egypt uh, in that smoking furnace. But then after you come out of Egypt, you're going to be a burning lamp to the world. Every book in the Bible was written by one of the Jewish people. Uh, you got you got a little piece over in Daniel that was written in Nebuchadnezzar, but the rest written by Jews. They've been the light of the world, even though they've been in darkness themselves. All right, so... <clears throat> Abraham didn't go through those pieces. Only God did. What's God saying? I'm meeting the terms of this covenant. I'm meeting the terms of this covenant. Now the law, which came hundreds of years after, cannot represent a modification, uh, an amendment, or a disannulling of anything in that promise that God made to Abraham because even honest men wouldn't do a thing like that, let alone God. For if the inheritance be of the law, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. His clear meaning is he gave it to Abraham by 
an unconditional promise. Wherefore then serveth the law, it was added because of transgression. Now that's a thought, isn't it? Have you ever seen them pass a law against something that nobody was doing? You know, uh, people start doing bad things and they pass a law against it, you see. The people are already guilty when the law is passed, you see. It was added because of transgression till the seed should come to whom the promise had been made and it was ordained by angels in the hand of the mediator. Here's the thing the Bible is going to divulge to us in more than one place after Sinai that God actually delivered that law on Sinai through angels. In fact, that's in several places. Uh, Acts 7, where Stephen was preaching, he told those Jews, you received the law at the disposition of angels and have not kept it. Uh, we got it again, Hebrews 2, opening verses, for the word uh, spoken by angels was steadfast so that every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense and reward. How shall we escape? If we neglect so great salvation that at the first again he spoken to us by the Lord, not by angels. So this law was given through angels in the hand of a mediator. That mediator was Moses. Now, uh, when you got a mediator around, you got trouble. You know, if you were to tell me that uh, me and my wife, uh, we've hired a mediator, we've hired an arbitrator, I know you two are having trouble, you see. Or uh, me and that business down the road, we've had to get an arbitrator or a mediator uh, to work with us. I know you, you're at disagreement. And you know why they had a mediator uh, when that law was given? Because there was conflict between God and the people. And in fact, the people said, we do not want to go up that mountain. That thing is scary. You go up there for us, Moses. And later on, God said, they have well said they should not be coming up this mountain. You know, the children of Israel couldn't get anything right, it seemed. But they got this right, said, you got this right. You don't need to be approaching this mountain. This was not a time of peace and harmony with God. It was a time of trouble. And in the coming of the gospel, God himself came and walked in our midst, healed our infirmities, comforted our hearts, raised us from the dead. What a wonderful story that the gospel of Jesus Christ is. Now, I realize he serves as a mediator uh, in a sense, but he also is God. He is the image of the invisible God. And as we view him, uh, there's nothing standing between us and him and God. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid, for had a law been given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. Been far better that you would have kept some commandment and gone to heaven than to have required Jesus Christ to die. But he himself in the garden prayed, if it be possible that this cup pass from me. That doesn't mean he's backing out. He is going to show you there is no other way. 
It is impossible. But the scripture hath concluded all unto sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them to believe. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ to put on Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus, and if you be Christ, then are ye Abraham's seed, and heirs according to promise. So he tells us what the purpose of the law was and is. It's a schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. That is why I love the Old Testament. That is why I preach the Old Testament. There is no more powerful witness for Jesus Christ in all the universe besides the apostles than the Old Testament scriptures. When we're going through the Old Testament prophecies and what they tell us about Christ, we're amazed. One time I tried to compute the probability that those prophecies could just accidentally come to pass, what would be the odds against that? And I found there's not enough atoms in the entire universe to express those odds. We uh, are fascinated with the types, shadows of, of Jesus Christ. Even the dry parts of the law come alive when we see that they are portending uh, Jesus Christ. And that's why we have the Old Testament. Earlier, I talked to you about how we don't take from it and put it in the church insofar as the procedure of worship is concerned. But I did not say to you, I have no use for the Old Testament. I did not say that at all. Uh, in fact, I'm giving it a higher function and a greater honor than even the old Jews did. Because I'm telling you, it teaches you Jesus Christ. Bring it on. I want all of it I can get. It was a schoolmaster to lead us unto Christ. Now he says here that you're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. He means manifestly so. Manifestly so. And I want you to get into the next chapter. I'm going to limit the time here. In the next chapter, he's going to give us a, a little story to illustrate his meaning here. He said... The child, or the heir, as long as he is a child, differeth nothing from a servant, though he be lord over all. All right, so let's suppose that you're a child of a very, very rich man. Your daddy is worth billions. Now, one of these days, you're going to be the heir to all this. But when you're a child, that's not evident. And in fact, in the old days, rich people like this would hire some servant, maybe a slave, to actually teach and discipline the child. Uh, we might call this a nanny today, uh, a guardian. Paul calls it a schoolmaster. Schoolmaster. So here you are, uh, going to be worth billions of dollars one of these days, and you've got a slave bossing you around. You see? 
Now, uh, the time came when that child was old enough and mature enough that he was released from the, the obligations to that servant. He was formally recognized as the father's heir. And then the servant took orders from him. Instead of him taking orders from the servant. Even so, says the apostle, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that are under the law, that we might receive the adoption of son. Uh, but by adoption here, he doesn't mean exactly the same thing we mean when we talk about adoption today. Now, let's look at this child. Uh, when we talk about adoption today, we're talking about taking somebody who is no part of the family and bringing them into the family. That's not what I just described to you. I got a child here who has always been in the family. He's always been in the family. But he reaches a point to where he's elevated to a level of higher status, honor, and freedom in that family. You see? Accordingly, we've always been in the family of God. God's people have been in that family by covenant from before the foundation of the world. But they reached a point where they were liberated from the schoolmaster and they were elevated to a higher level of honor within the family and formally recognized as heirs. And that's what he meant earlier when he said, you're all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. Actually, that word there for children uh, is used to describe a mature child or one who is no longer under the uh, schoolmaster. And really, he said here what I said earlier. If you're in Jesus Christ, New Testament church, you're in the most honored position you could possibly be in. Why would you want to change it? Jesus said there's none born of women greater than John the Baptist. Nevertheless, he that is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I'm not telling you that I've lived a good life that John the Baptist lived, but I'll tell you this, I'm, I'm in a place of higher honor. Than John the Baptist occupied. Uh, so why would we want to take things from the old law and mix them with our religion? And if that be true of the divinely inspired old law, why in the world would you want to take things from the world and mix them with religion? Recently, I uh, gave a speech on foundations of church practice. Talked about the principles that we try to follow. Uh, in determining what our church practice would be. And uh, the last thing that I addressed in that speech was, uh, and, and incidentally, the speech is online if you want to listen to it. But the last thing I addressed in the uh, speech was the claim that uh, all these innovations that we've added to the church, things we've added that uh, are without scriptural precedent or precept from the uh, New Testament, they make me happy. I get joy out of them. Oh, I love hearing the electric guitars and the drums. We have so much fun at Circus Church, things like that. 
Well, uh, of course, the first problem with that is you've got no scriptural proof that God has had any with it. So that's that's enough right there. Uh, if, if you don't have proof God's had you with it, I don't want it. I mean, I didn't join the church for self-fulfillment. I joined the church to serve a cause. How about you? Is that why you joined the church? To serve a cause. Here's the next problem with it. I don't know exactly how happy you are with those things, but I can guarantee you this. You're not happier than me. Are you willing to say that? I'm willing to go before the judgment seat of Christ with that one. You're not happier than me. And, you know, Jesus made this precious promise. If you know these things, happier are you as you do if you do them. That means there's a path to happiness for everybody. I don't care how dark life has gotten. There is a formula you can follow to find happiness. Do what Jesus said. Keep his church as he gave it. Serve it and follow the law of Jesus Christ. All right, thank you very much. We'll look forward to hearing from you this afternoon.